Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffress. Peace in our time. Peace with honor. Those were the words of British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain on September the 30th, 1938. The occasion for that proclamation was the signing that he had just completed of a peace covenant with German Chancellor Adolf Hitler, in which they promised neither country would invade the other. Within one year, that peace treaty was broken, and British, the British Empire was fighting for her survival. Somebody did a study one time of all of the peace agreements between the years 1500 B.C. and 850 A.D. In those 2,400 years, there were more than 7,500 peace agreements, and not one of them lasted more than two years. We see the futility of peace agreements even with what's happening in the Middle East. Think of all of the peace attempts to bring together Jews and Muslims between Israel and the Palestinians. Think of how many there have been in just the last few decades. I jotted some of them down. You had the Madrid Conference of 1991, the Oslo Accords of 1993, the Hebron Agreement in 1997, the Camp David Summit in 2000, the Arab Peace Initiative of 2002, the Roadmap for Peace in 2003, and on and on and on it goes. And yet on October 7th, Israel was invaded by Hamas. Why is it that there's that continuing tension in the Middle East? We've talked in the past about the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael and Isaac, but there's an even a deeper reason for the disagreement, the hatred between Jews and Muslims. It's the same reason for the cause for conflict between Caucasians and African Americans in our culture. The tension between men and women, between husbands and wives, between mothers and their teenage daughters. There's a reason for the tension between Christians in a local church. Our alienation from one another, at the basis of it, is our alienation from God himself. And the only way we'll ever be reconciled with other people is being reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. Now, that is the theme of Paul's message we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Harry, Harry Ironside was the longtime pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. One day he was traveling on train to a speaking engagement, and a gypsy-looking woman, I don't know if you can say that and be politically correct, but she was, looked like a gypsy, approached uh, the pastor and said, sir, for a quarter, I can tell you your past, your present, and your future. He said to her instantly, well, I'm Scotch, and I don't part with quarters very easily. 
And after all, I really don't need your prediction because I already have a little book that tells me about my past, my present, and my future. She said, you do? And he pulled out his New Testament. He said, let me tell you about my past. And he turned to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That was my past. She said, I don't need any more. He said, oh, yes, you do. Let me tell you about my present. He said, but you, though you were dead in trespasses and sin, he has made you alive together in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved. She said, that's plenty. Trust me, that's plenty. He said, I couldn't tell you about my past and present without telling me my future. Why did he do this? So that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward those in Christ Jesus. And with that, the gypsy walked off muttering to herself, I chose the wrong man. I chose the wrong man. Now, that's a good summary, Ephesians 2, 1 to 7, our past, our present, and our future. And why did God do all of this? Why did he make those of us who were spiritually dead, spiritually alive? One reason, one word, grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Remember what grace is, it's that undeserved burst of generosity on the part of God. But now, beginning in verse 11, Paul is going to zero in on and double down on the difference, the contrast between our spiritual condition before we came to Christ and what has happened since we've come to Christ. First of all, he talks about our alienation, our alienation from people, first of all, from the Jews. We were alienated. We were hostile toward the Jewish people. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember, Paul was writing to Ephesians. They were Gentile Christians. And he said, remember what the Jews used to call you? They used to call you the uncircumcision. By the way, that wasn't a term of endearment. It was like a racial slur today, the uncircumcised. Now, you understand and remember what circumcision is. It was a medical procedure. It was the removal of the foreskin of a male. God commanded it, not just for health reasons, but for people to identify as Jews, as descendants of Abraham. It was an outward sign that pointed to a future inward truth. And that is, it was a picture of what God would one day do through Christ who has performed not a circumcision of the flesh, but of our hearts. He's removed the hardness of our hearts, the hardness of our sin in our new relationship with God. But like so many Christians today in regards to baptism, the Jews made a mistake about circumcision. They focused only on the external act rather than the inward truth that was supposed to portray. And so they prided themselves, we are the circumcision, and you filthy Gentiles are of the uncircumcision. He reminded these Gentiles of how they used to uh, be thought of. Now, it's understandable why Israel was proud. God had chosen Israel out of all the nations of the earth for a special purpose. When I had the privilege five years ago of leading the opening prayer for the embassy dedication in Jerusalem, 
I reminded the Jewish leaders assembled there, along with the global audience, about why we are indebted to Israel. It is through Israel that we receive the knowledge of the one true God, Yahweh. We didn't know about Yahweh apart from the Jews. We received the knowledge of God. It's through Israel that we received the prophets who came to communicate God's message. It was through Israel that, for the most part, we received all of our scriptures. And it is through Israel that the Messiah of the world, Jesus Christ, came. We are indebted to Israel, but God chose Israel not because of Israel's superiority. He chose them out of grace. And they made the same mistake many Christians make today. Instead of using their position to try to convert unbelievers, Gentiles, they used their position to condemn the Gentiles. Instead of being a light to the Gentiles, they were a stumbling block to the Gentiles. Now, the fact is, even though God uh, chose the Jews, there was a separation between the Jews and the Jews and Gentiles. And that was certainly seen in the design of the temple. Remember how the tabernacle and later the temple was designed? There was only one spot where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. That was his dwelling place. And nobody, Jew nor Gentile, could enter into the Holy of Holies. The only person who could come in was the priest, the high priest. And that was once a year to make atonement for sin. Other than that, nobody came into the presence of God. Outside of the Holy of Holies was the holy place. Outside the holy place was the court of the priest where only male members of the tribe of Levi could come, the priestly tribe. Outside of the court of the priest was the court of Israel. That was only for Jewish men. And outside of the court of Israel was the court of women. They were on the outside. They could only stay in that area of the court of women. But the farthest distance in the temple was not between the Jews. It was between that outer ring, the court of the women, and the court of the Gentiles. To travel to the court of the Gentiles, you had to leave the court of women, descend five steps, walk 14 more steps, go outside a five-foot barricade that had written on it words to this effect, trespassers will be executed. No Gentile would ever breach that wall, that barricade that had been set up. By the way, remember, the whole reason Paul was in Rome awaiting trial was because of uh, what had happened uh, to him when he was in Jerusalem, when he was accused of taking a Gentile into the place in the temple reserved for Jews only. There was a division between Jews and Gentiles and you see that in the layout of the temple. But remember this, the Jews didn't design the temple. God designed it. And the division that the temple portrays is a very real division that existed that time. There was a barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And in fact, the Gentiles were in worse shape spiritually than the Jews were. The Jews were near God although they weren't allowed into the presence of God, but the Gentiles were far away from God. And in verse 12, Paul illustrates five ways that the Gentiles were more alienated from God than even the Jews were. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
Write these down, the five ways people like us, Gentiles, were in worse shape than the Jews. First of all, we had no Savior. Now, at least in Judaism, there was a Savior, a Messiah that would come. Now, the Jews missed him. They didn't realize it was Jesus Christ, but at least they had a provision for somebody to take away their sins. The Gentiles had no such person. Religions today don't have any Savior. There's no Savior in Islam. There's no Savior in Hinduism. Only Christianity offers a Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, they had no nation. There was no nation like the Jews had. The Jews had a nation, Israel, that would be an object lesson of God's favor and judgment. The Gentiles had no such nation. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the United States of America is not the new Israel. There are people who believe in replacement theology, that we have replaced Israel. No, no nation has the promise of endurance that God gave to Israel. The United States, I hate to tell you, some of you because you're going to be shocked, is not going to exist forever. Our nation will eventually unravel. Only Israel has the promise of endurance. Gentiles have no nation. We have no promises. You are excluded from the covenants of God. Israel, only Israel had the promise of protection, blessing, guidance, and prosperity. Fourthly, Gentiles have no hope. No hope. You know, somebody once said, man can go 40 days without food, three days without water, but only a few moments without hope. We all need hope, and there was no hope for Gentiles. In fact, the Stoic philosophers of Paul's day believed all of human history was done in 3,000-year cycles. The universe would exist for 3,000 years, then it would be burned up and would start over again for another 3,000 years and another 3,000 years. Uh, history was circular. It wasn't going anyplace. That leaves people with despair. That was the Gentiles, no hope. And most of all, they were in a worse position than we are because they had no God. There was no God. Paul says, you were without God in this world. That phrase, without God, is the Greek word atheos. Ah means no, without. Theos means God. That's what an atheist, atheist is, somebody who is without God. Now, the fact is, the Gentiles had hundreds of gods, thousands of gods. In fact, it was said that in the city of Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. But they were all gods who were the product of our imagination, not the true God of Israel. William Barclay sums up the desperate condition of the Gentiles when he writes, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. They said that the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell and that God loved only Israel and all the nations that he made. That's the desperate condition we were in. And that leads to, though, our reconciliation. Notice in verse 13, our reconciliation with others. Even though we had no God, we had no hope, we had no promises, notice here that phrase, but now. It reminds us of that phrase, but God. God intervened in our situation. And you who were formerly far off from God, that's Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. 
Who is our peace? It's not a president. It's not a congressperson. It's not a judge. It's not a negotiator. What's the answer to the enmity, the strife between Jews and Gentiles? It's not some two-state solution. That will never do it. The answer is a one-king solution, Jesus Christ. He is the one who has broken down the barrier, and it's only in Christ that that barrier will be broken forever. He is our peace. And what did he do? Look at verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the hatred, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. What does he mean, getting rid of the commandments? He's talking about the Old Testament law, not the moral law, but the ritual law, the ceremonial law that said that Jews and Gentiles couldn't eat together. They couldn't marry one another. All of that was done away with. We are all one in Christ Jesus. He has established peace. You know, as I prepared the sermon this week, almost every commentator I read used the same illustration, the same story. It's one I used in my book and series, Not All Roads Lead to Heaven, a few years ago. It was a story about the GIs during World War II who had a fellow soldier who was killed in battle, and they were desperate to find a place to bury him. And so late one night, they knocked on the door of the little church next to the village cemetery, and the priest answered the door, and they explained their friend had died and wondered if they could bury him in the little cemetery. And the priest said, is he Catholic? And uh, the men said, well, no. And he said, well, this is a Catholic cemetery, and he can't be buried here. And so, disheartened, they took their friend's body, and they found a little plot outside the fence of the cemetery, and they buried him. The next morning, they came to pay respects to their friend, but they couldn't find the grave anywhere. So, they knocked on the door with hesitation, and the priest answered, and they said, we can't find our friend anywhere. Do you know where his body is? The priest said, I stayed up all night last night. The first half of the night, I spent regretting what I'd said to you. I spent the second half of the night moving the fence. You know, I've heard that story over and over again, and just about everybody makes the wrong application to that story. They said, we need to be more inclusive. We need to move the fence. And so you have the Pope few years ago, deciding to move the fence of who could be in heaven. And he said, there's a place for atheists in heaven. What a stupid thing to say. He has no authority to say that. He just made that up. There's a place for atheists in heaven. We don't get to decide who comes into heaven. Other people say, there's a place for Muslims in heaven. There's a place for Hindus. There's a place for Jews who don't trust in Christ. We want to move the fence to be inclusive. Ladies and gentlemen, only God can move the fence. He's the one who has established the fence. And he says who is inside and outside the kingdom of God. And those who are inside the kingdom of God, the only ones are those who have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. God is the one who establishes the boundaries. But once he's established those boundaries, we have no right to keep people out of the kingdom of God 
whom God says are a part of the kingdom of God. And anyone who comes to faith in Christ is a part of the kingdom of God. He talks about our reconciliation with others is based on our reconciliation with God. Look at verse 16, that he might reconcile them both, whom? Jews and Gentiles, in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Well, you notice the only people who can be reconciled to one another are those who have been reconciled to God. What does that mean, reconciled? That word reconcile is a picture of two people in a relationship. One person moves away from that relationship, but the other person, the aggrieved party, makes the first step to bridge that separation. You know, I'm reminded of the story of the husband and wife who were driving to dinner one night to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary, and on their way to the restaurant, the wife started to complain. She said, honey, do you remember when we first started dating? We'd go out to eat together, and we'd be sitting so close together, huddled together in, while we were driving to the restaurant, and now look at us. Look at all this distance. You're on your side. I'm over here on my side. He said, well, honey, I haven't moved. You know, that's what God says to us. There is a separation, but it's not because God moved from us. It's because we moved away from God. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone unto our own way. But even though we're the ones who made the initial move away from God, God took the first step in reconciling with us. God took the first step. Remember what Paul said to the Romans, while we were yet what? sinners, Christ died for us. First John 4.10, here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins. God took the first move in reconciling us to himself, and only when we understand that can we be reconciled to others. You know, God's act of reconciling us was dramatically illustrated on that Good Friday when Jesus died. 3 p.m. that afternoon. Remember what happened in the temple? The biggest division in the temple was the division from all of the temple from the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. There was a huge curtain, a huge veil. And Matthew 27, 51 says, the moment Christ died, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not from the bottom up, it started from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. It's substantial that it tore from top to bottom, because that meant God is the one who tore the veil and true. Our choir sings that song uh, about tearing down the veil and let the praise be lifted up. That's exactly what God has done. I often wondered what those Jewish priests who were there to offer their sacrifices must have thought when they saw that temple curtain torn in two. I'm sure the first thing they thought of is, I don't have a job any longer. I'm unemployed. No longer will people have to depend upon me to go behind the veil or the high priest. Everyone is welcome to come to God through our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened. Look at verse 17. And he, talking about Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
Who were those who were far away? It's the Gentiles, stuck out there in the court of the Gentiles, a long way separated from God. But guess what? The Jews were near, but they weren't in the Holy of Holies. They were separated from God as well. And Jesus came and offered grace to both groups. Verse 18, for through him, that is Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. That word access is an interesting word. It's only used three times in the Greek New Testament, and every time it refers to somebody who introduces another person to the king, who provides access. A number of years ago, when President Bush, George W. Bush, was president of our country, I remember talking to a friend one day and I was pontificating about the strengths and the weaknesses of President Bush. And after all, I was an expert on the topic because I had read an article in Newsweek. And so I thought I was certainly qualified to speak to the president's strengths and weaknesses. So I was giving my little speech. And when I finished, my friend said, well, you know, Robert, yesterday when I was talking to President Bush, I thought, what? What? He said, yeah, I was in Washington, and a friend of mine works on his staff, and he arranged for me to go into the Oval Office and spend about five minutes talking to the president. Believe me, I had nothing else to say. <laughs> now, how is it my friend got into the Oval Office? Was it because he was wealthy? Well, a lot of wealthy people never make it in there. Was it because he was a leader in his industry? He was a titan of the industry he was involved in, but that wasn't the reason. He got in there because he knew somebody. He knew somebody who was close to the president, and that person provided access. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've got great news for you. You, if you're a Christian, have access to the most powerful leader in the universe, God himself. And you can go into his presence anytime you want to, even without an appointment. And what's the basis for going into the presence of God Almighty? You know somebody. Jesus Christ, his son. It is through him that we have access in one spirit to the Father. And what does that mean for us? What does that reconciliation mean to us? Notice we've talked about our alienation from God, our reconciliation with God, and notice our unification. First of all, with God. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's households. That word strangers, xenos, it's a word that would correspond to illegal immigrant today, somebody who is trying to enter a country illegally or is there illegally, xenos. Aliens is another word, par, par oikos. It's a reference to somebody who is in the land, he's in the country, but he ha doesn't have the rights of citizenship. He's without the rights of citizenships. Now, this is what Paul is saying. Even though some of you were strangers, that's the Gentiles, you're illegal immigrants, if it were, trying to burst into a country you have no part in. Some of you were strangers, others of you were aliens. He's talking about the Jewish people. Yeah, you were in the country, in the promised land, but you weren't children of God. You're not citizens of the kingdom yet. But now through Christ, you are fellow citizens and are of God's household. We have been unified with God. And what does that mean? 
verse 20. Look at this. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, when he wrote the word temple, everybody knew what he was talking about. For the Ephesian Gentiles who were reading this letter, when they thought of the temple, they thought of the big temple of Diana right there in their city of Ephesus, one of the great wonders of the world. When the Jews read the word temple, they didn't think of the temple of Diana. They thought about Herod's temple in Jerusalem. But God is saying, I'm no longer building physical temples. I'm building a new kind of worship. I'm building a spiritual temple not with stones and bricks, but with the lives of those who are coming to Christ. That's what God's temple is that he's building right now. And he says, in whom you also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God has built a new temple. It's a holy temple. It's a spiritual temple of believers. And every believer is a part of that temple Paul uses also the image of a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are Christ's body and you are individually members of it. And guess what? All the stones in the temple are equal. They're all fitted together to be a part of that temple. All the members of the body, though not the same, are equal. They're all vitally necessary for the proper working of the body of Christ. Now, this is Paul's point. Because we have been unified with God, we are fellow heirs of his promises. We are all part of this new spiritual temple called the church that God is building. If we are in that church, in that temple, we should not be erecting false barriers, artificial barriers that separate us. No, we're all one. This isn't like the temple, that there are separations. We are all one in Christ. And yet, even though that's true, did you know people, it's just instinctive, we want to build up these artificial barriers. We have it in our nature to want to separate from other people so we feel better about ourselves. And that's something we've got to fight every opportunity we have, developing artificial barriers in the church of the living God. Some people raise up artificial theological barriers. I'm not talking about essential doctrines. I'm talking about secondary, tertiary issues. They want to divide over. We're Calvinists. We're Arminianists. We believe that faith precedes regeneration, or we believe that regeneration um, precedes faith. That's how we believe. Or we separate along the lines of the end times theology. I'm premillennialist. I'm amillennialist. Let me say something to you. It doesn't matter what you believe about the order of events and salvation. It doesn't matter what you believe about the end times. You're welcomed at the First Baptist Church of Dallas. We're not going to set that up as an artificial barrier. Some churches set up artificial barriers over race. Our church did that for far too long. For more than 100 years, we had a philosophy in our church. It wasn't written down but it was part of the philosophy that one race is superior to another race. Fortunately, we had a pastor, Dr. W.A. Criswell, who in 1968 tore down that barrier. 
He said, it doesn't matter whether you're black or brown or white or purple, you're welcomed in the First Baptist Church of Dallas. There is no race in God's mind. Some people want to separate over politics. They want to separate over politics, political divisions. Let me say clearly, we don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, or part of the I'm tired of all of it and give up party. (laughs) You're welcomed in the First Baptist Church of Dallas. There are people who even want to erect artificial barriers over gender. That's true. God created us male and female. He's the one who determines gender. There are different roles for gender that are spelled out in the Bible. But don't think difference in roles means superiority and inferiority. In Christ, there is no male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, you're welcomed at the First Baptist Church of Dallas. May I even say that sometimes we build up artificial walls when it comes to our relationship to unbelievers. And you see this in so many churches, an us versus them mentality. We're inside the kingdom, they're outside the kingdom. We condemn them rather than try to convert them. Think about this. Why was there a court of Gentiles outside the temple? Was it just to make the Gentiles feel bad? (laughs) No. The whole purpose of the court of Gentiles was so that they could watch and hear what was happening in the temple area and hopefully be proselytized to become a part of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even in that layout of the temple, there was a heart toward unbelievers. We, of course, believe that only through faith in Christ you can come into the kingdom of God. But we ought to have a kind of church that is welcoming to unbelievers to come and hear the gospel and to be saved. Tony Campolo is a Christian sociologist and a part-time pastor. He's wrong about so many things. Last few years, he's been attacking me, among other things. He's wrong about many things, but just because you're wrong about many things doesn't mean you're wrong about everything. And one thing he certainly has gotten right through the years is the fact that the church ought to have a heart for unbelievers. In one of his books, he tells a story about a trip he took to Hawaii to teach at a conference. When he landed in Honolulu, his internal clock was all messed up, so he couldn't go to sleep. So he decided to go to a diner that was next to his hotel. And it was three o'clock in the morning, and the only people in there were a group of prostitutes. And so he listened to them, and he happened to hear one of them named Agnes say that tomorrow was her birthday, and she had never had a birthday party before. After the prostitutes left, Tony approached the guy behind the counter named Harry and said, would it be okay if I came back tomorrow night and threw a birthday party. We had a big birthday party for Agnes. Harry said, sure. And Tony picks up the story. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I'd picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a big sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes. The women who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. 
At 3.30, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes with her friend. I had everybody ready, and when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday. Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted. Her mouth fell open and her legs buckled. When we finished singing, her eyes moistened. When the cake was carried out, she started to cry. Harry gruffly said, blow out the candles, Agnes. If you don't, I'll blow them out. And so they were blown out. The cutting of the cake took even longer. Cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some cake, Harry said. Look, Harry, if it's okay with you, I'd like to keep the cake a little while. Is it okay if we don't eat it right away? Sure, if you want to keep it, that's yours. You can take it home if you want to. Looking at me, she said, can I? Can I take it home? I just live down the street. I want to take the home cake home. I'll be right back. And so she carried the cake out the door like it was the holy grail. We stood there motionless, a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray together? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange that a sociologist would be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But at that time, it just seemed the right thing to do. And so I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation, that her life would be changed. I prayed that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said with a kind of irritation, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and almost sneered as he answered, no, you don't. There's no such church like that. If there were, I'd join it. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? That's the kind of church Jesus came to create. And that's the kind of church, ladies and gentlemen, I believe he wants First Baptist Dallas to continue to be. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. God doesn't hate unbelievers. God loves believers and unbelievers. God loves unbelievers so much he sent his son Jesus to make the ultimate sacrifice to die on the cross for our sins. This morning, you may be listening to this message. You may feel like there's a barrier between you and God. That barrier exists. It's called sin, and there's nothing we can do to tear down that wall that separates us from God. But God made the first move. He sent Christ to die for us, and he offers to forgive you of any and every sin if you'll simply ask him to do just that. And so I want to give those of you who are watching right now those of you in our worship center, an opportunity to receive God's gift of forgiveness. All you need to do is pray this simple prayer with me. Would you pray it with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, 
that you love me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment for my sin that I deserve to take. And right now I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you in Jesus' name. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.